0: for today is from Matthew 6, 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? (laughs) And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these." Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that you would enable all of us right now to heed Jesus' instruction in that last verse to uh, not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And so... All of us come in uh, here with anxieties and um, concerns, uh, difficulties, uh, struggles, um, struggles around money and finances and work um, and duty. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to separate from that, uh, to not be anxious about tomorrow, to let tomorrow worry for itself, but to be present in the moment. Uh, Would you help us to receive and experience the grace that we have uh, from you, uh, that we can sit here and know that you are God, that Jesus is King, that the Spirit is powerful. Um, as we sang earlier that, God, you have gone before us, uh, you, have, you are beside us, um, you are behind us, and so we can rest. So help us as we consider Jesus' instruction on money uh, to consider it from that posture of rest, uh, to be curious and hopeful and optimistic um, that the righteousness that you are putting before us is a righteousness that, because of Jesus, we can pursue and lean into. Uh, We love you. Uh, Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in middle and high school, I loved the comic strip, uh, comic strip Dilbert, um, which makes me a big nerd, and I, I just was. I like, read the books and like, was obsessive, and my parents were annoyed because I would regularly show them things that were funny that they did not think was funny. Um, that was me, high school me. <laughs> um, one of my favorite characters in the Dilbert universe is Phil. Um, apparently Scott Adams wanted to include Satan as a character, but his editor discouraged him from doing it. Um, and so he compromised and came up with Phil, which is like a low grade Satan, right? So Phil has a spoon instead of a fork. Uh, he's not the prince of darkness, but he's the prince of insufficient light. Um, he's a ruler of heck instead of hell. And one thing that's really great about heck, um, it's like hell, but the heater keeps breaking. And then later, Heck uh, opens a non-alcoholic beer business, which is just like a perfect uh, perfect expression. Uh, throughout the series, Phil's purpose is to dole out annoying punishments for small infractions. So like, if you take five ketchup packets when you know that you only need two, Um, he will appear. And for that minor infraction, you might be condemned to like two hours with Wally from accounting. Um, And so I thought it was super funny. Um, I really loved Phil, um, love his character. Um, But sometimes I wonder if that's how we think about God and money when we have these discussions, right? Of course, there are obvious moral failings like embezzling money. Those are big deals. And that's when we would bring out um, Satan in full. There are extreme cases of Hoarding your wealth and wasting it, right? Scrooge, the prodigal son, those kinds of figures. But if we begin to talk about it, who's to say what hoarding and wasting really is, right? Where's the line between hoarding and saving? Uh, where's the line between wastefulness and freedom? How do you know? And So one can imagine how genuine efforts at faithfulness could quickly become crippling for us because we're really frozen, we don't know what faithfulness is, or on the flip side, how a disingenuous effort um, at faithfulness will just find loopholes everywhere uh, and just do whatever we want and we'll just rationalize our way through it. And that is exactly what happened to Judaism prior to the arrival of Jesus, both the crippling aspect of legalism and the disingenuous uh, pursuit of loopholes. We've been walking through the biblical story of money for seven weeks, and while it's definitely followed a plot line, right? It's been an interesting development from creation and fall through Abraham and Moses to Israel and the law. The Bible has been remarkably consistent in its outlook on money, uh, where the ethic remains the same from creation through, uh, through the Old Testament. Essentially, all wealth begins with God and belongs to God. It is pure gift, both before and after the fall. That is the story of money. That's the origin story, that money is gift. And we honor God the giver by thanking him in worship and by being like him in our behavior, using what he's given to become givers ourselves. Sin tragically makes us idolaters and takers. It corrupts both of those purposes of money. Um, We become anxious takers who fearfully hoard and steal God's gifts out of mistrust and pride. And the Old Testament, from that point forward, is all about how God is trying to make us givers again. He's trying to make us lovers again, lovers of him and lovers of neighbor. God rescues Israel from slavery to Egypt and gives them the law that they might no longer be slaves but become a nation of neighbors, devoting their lives to loving God and loving others. That's the purpose of the three Sabbaths that we talked about the Sabbath pause every week, the Sabbath uh, release every seven years when all debt is released, and then the year of Jubilee when everybody returns to their land. Last week in Proverbs, we saw further how God's gifts to us should result in diligence and righteousness. That out of fear of God, out of love for God as the giver, it should motivate in us um, diligence where we're called to work hard with what God gives us so that it bears fruit and becomes more for the sake of community. And then we're called to pursue righteousness and justice with our money. So never stealing from the poor. On the contrary, we're to be merciful and gracious all these elements can be found in the teachings of Jesus. And so you can read Jesus, and, and he's not saying anything new. And that's one of the things that struck me as I was preparing this week, how Jesus is not saying much new about money. He is reaffirming what God has always said, what he has always hoped for um, in his kingdom. It, is, it was interesting to me, though, um, regularly when you read about Jesus and money, you'll hear that no single person in the Bible talks so much about money as Jesus. Um, and so that's striking. It also is striking to me because I've often also heard that no single person in the Bible talks so much about hell as Jesus. And I wonder, um, how those things connect. Um, right. I don't think that that is a coincidence that money and hell are related to one another. And that kind of speaks to where we skipped over. We didn't have um, enough weeks uh, to engage the prophets, Um, but the prophets very much bring those things together. They bring um, the misuse of money and condemnation for it. Um, So regarding wealth, they are essentially a photo negative of the story of money told thus far, right? So they confirm the law and the wisdom literature by just telling how Israel was failure, Uh, failed to be faithful and what that looked like. So in contrast to the law, in contrast to Proverbs, Israel did not honor God or love their neighbor with their wealth. They didn't keep the Sabbath, and so much of the prophets talks about their failure to keep the Sabbath and that the exile actually was a forced Sabbath for the land. Um, They didn't free the poor from debt every seven years in the year of release. Uh, Some scholars wonder if that has ever happened. but um, it's clear in the prophets that they are indicted for failing to do it, Um, and instead the gap between the rich and the poor increased. They didn't return people to the land every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, and so certain families, certain clans got very powerful um, over years, and others got poor. Um, The rich got richer, the poor got poorer, and God burned with anger. We read some of those Proverbs that God Um, is infuriated by the oppression of the poor and the weak, and because of their mismanagement of God's gifts, for their abuse of the weak, for their worship of golden idols, Israel is exiled. They're sent out from God's presence and God's blessing. In a word, they are sent to hell, right? they They are cast out from his presence. That is the story that the prophets tell. But the big new thing in the prophets is that God promises a return from exile. And so even as he acknowledges his anger, he says that he will not be angry forever. Um, That he will show Israel grace and bring them back home. And this return will not just be a redo. Uh, When you read the Old Testament, humanity has had enough redos, right? They, They clearly need something more. And so this time God promises to write a new covenant to give the people of God new hearts which are able to keep this new covenant. Because God is not going to soften his expectations for the world, right? That is not what grace is, a softening of expectations. He will never be content with a world of taking. And we should never be content with a world of taking, We want a world that's marked by givers, by neighbors who genuinely love God and love each other. But now it is abundantly clear by the end of the Old Testament that they need something more to get them there. And so he commits to send a Messiah, and not just any Messiah, but his only son, to save them and lead them. When Jesus, God's son made man, begins his ministry, though, what he finds is a bunch of fills a bunch of princes of insufficient light, Pharisees, who know something of the truth, but not enough of it. And they have just simply added to God's law a bunch of tiny laws, tiny infractions around money, regulating in excruciating detail the Sabbath, tithes, defining who counts as a neighbor and who doesn't. But rather than shedding light, they have obscured it. Um, I imagine... um, I assume that Phariseeism began in good faith, uh, that it was people who were genuinely trying to pursue holiness, but in the end, they completely missed the point of the law, and Jesus condemns them often. Matthew 23, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin.'" but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And so their rules and regulations and condemnations didn't create greater love for God or neighbor, but instead they divided people um, between uh, the righteous and the unrighteous, um, the in crowd and the out crowd, And it distracted them from the real barrier to faithfulness, which was their own hearts. So Jesus continues Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also might be clean. Um, It's important to note here that hypocrisy for Jesus is not intentional. Uh, Where I say one thing and act another, that's how we use a a hypocrite as somebody who says they're going to do something, but in secret, they're not doing it. Um, That's uh, how we use the term today. But in Jesus' usage, hypocrisy is more an inner blindness where the Pharisee himself is confused. The Pharisee thinks he's righteous, but he's not. Um, so, so we should, we should trust the genuineness of the Pharisees. They thought they were doing the right thing when they murdered Jesus. They thought they were honoring God. Um, and so it's a doubleness, not of words and actions, but of actions in the heart. There is a division between their heart and their actions. Jonathan Pennington writes, righteousness is whole person living, It's defined by the inside matching the outside. That's what righteousness is. And so for a religious community, the most serious potential opposite to this is not blatant immorality, where that outside would match the inside, right? But it's a skin deep righteousness rather than true wholeness. That is what is going to be disruptive to the religious community, and that's who the Pharisees are. And so it's into this spiritual environment that Jesus ministers and teaches. He's speaking to people who have been taught to follow the Pharisees, uh, to focus on the exterior, the visible, that which could be quantified and calculated. And he asked them to set those questions aside and focus on the heart. Um, Again, this is not new. The heart is present throughout the entire Old Testament. The command to love God with our um, whole selves, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's from Deuteronomy. Um, righteousness is always aimed at wholeness more than performance, but wholeness is really difficult. (laughs) I mean, it's really hard to be authentically true through and through, and so often we are tempted by laws, by legalism. Just tell me what to do. Just just, uh, quantify it for me, and so that's what happens with the Pharisees. They decide, rather than Pursuing genuine heart level holiness, that they're just going to create a bunch of rules that's going to fence them in from sin. Um, But that fence has huge holes in it. I think this relates to our pursuit of money. Um, I know it relates to me. Um, I often feel divided when it comes to discussions of faith and money and possessions, I feel torn. Um, I have all of these questions that I don't know what to do with, and that's just not Jesus' desire for us. A life and mind torn between duty and desire, between coulds and shoulds, wants and needs. Those things should match up, and he wants them to match up for us. But it's so easy for me to focus, like the Pharisees, only on externals, and to stress about detail questions. Um, and externals feels manageable in theory, just give me the rules and I'll do them. Um, tithe 10%, there, done, it's not as easy, right? But it can quickly become overwhelming because the rules just stack up for all the exceptions, all the um, situations. So I ask, is it okay if I save? How much is too much? How much is too little? Is there a percentage I'm supposed to go for? Is it okay if I go on vacation? How long is too long? If I tithe, can I do anything I want? Have I given away enough money? Is it okay if I make this much money? If, it, if I work in this industry, is it okay if I buy this or that? And as I ask those questions in light of God, your mind can just be torn apart where you don't know what to do um, in the specifics. And that's the seedbed of legalism, of Phariseeism. It's not that there's anything wrong with the questions. It's that there continues to be something wrong with me. There is a division in my heart that makes those questions um, expose me rather than help me, which is why Jesus instructs us to attend to the heart first. Questions of the heart are primary and application is secondary. That's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Your behavior might be impeccable, but where is your heart? Uh, Scholars usually peg uh, chapter 5, 17 to 20 as the summary statement of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished.'" involves at the same time significantly more work, but produces far less righteousness. Legalism calls for more work, more effort, but it is less fruitful. The opposite of fruitful, really, because the Pharisees will never, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's into that context that Jesus comes delivering the Sermon on the Mount, and in it he provides a yoke which is both easier to bear and more righteous. It is easier to follow Christ and attend to the heart, um, which is also what God wants for us. How so? So Matthew 6, 19 to 21, when he starts his teaching on money, he says, "'Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal.'" But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. From the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens his section on wealth and possessions with this emphasis on the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a statement of fact. Our heart follows our treasure. Where our treasure is, that's where and how we spend our money. Where and how we make our money, where and how we save our money, where our treasure is, there our heart will be, right? And because all earthly treasure is temporary, Jesus encourages us to invest in heavenly treasure, which is eternal. The com- this command to lay up eternal treasure is simultaneously more righteous, because I'm aligning myself with God's economy over the earthly economy, and it's ultimately easier because only heavenly treasure lasts and so it's a lot less stressful on us to invest in heavenly treasure. A life focused on heavenly treasure is a life at peace because heavenly treasure is forever. And so there's no need to stress about your portfolio whether it's diversified enough when it comes to the fruit of the spirit, right? It's it's always going to bear fruit. The stock market on heavenly stock is never going to crash. Right? You will never overinvest in heavenly treasure. You can go all in on Jesus and trust you'll be okay. This doesn't mean you don't engage in earthly treasure. Like we still live in um, a physical world marked by a physical economy. You and I have to engage the world economy on some level, but it's secondary. Our heart remains with the heavenly treasure. Right. And any use of earthly treasure is always an investment tool in heavenly treasure. I was super, I don't know about you, but I was super humbled listening to Mel's description of her parents' church and all that they do for the community. Um, They are leveraging all that they have from an earthly standpoint, investing in love of neighbor, and it will redound to great heavenly treasure, And they've had, I'm sure, you know, and and I'm sure if we were able to sit down and talk with them, they've said no to lots of things in order to continue to do that. Their church has said no to lots of things. Um, But it was the wise decision. (laughs) Like, they um, are pursuing faithfulness. And Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with, Blessed are the poor. And so we know that wealth and poverty in this life do not reflect wealth and poverty in the next. It just depends on how we respond to it. It is not primary, but secondary. So whether we save or give or spend, when we buy groceries and pay rent, when we go out to eat, when we take trips, we are just asking the Lord to always transform these earthly gifts into heavenly ones. And so maybe that is a good starting place for us, as we seek to be more faithful with my, our money, maybe you don't need, you don't have, you're not embezzling. If you're embezzling funds, please stop. <laughs> um, but if you're just sort of moving through your life, just begin to ask the Lord, don't make changes. Ask the Lord to translate your decisions, your wealth into heavenly wealth and to help you do that. Just start with that prayer and see how that changes your posture, see how that changes um, what you do. We want the Lord to use our money, to use our possessions, and use what they purchase to grow in us the fruit of the Spirit, to create in us more affection for Jesus, for the church, for the lost, to expand God's kingdom and add to our number. And when our hearts are set in heaven, it changes how we see the world. And so I think if we were to move through our weeks and to pray every day over our money, just at the start of the day, if we were to begin, it would change our eyes. And that's how Jesus continues, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, verse 21. And then 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is you, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And scholars debate the precise interpretation of this verse, and they look at uh, views of the eye, whether, whether how what ancient people believed about how the eye worked. But I think the fundamental meaning here is clear. Jesus is again talking about wholeness in contrast to the Pharisees, where the eye is a window between the inside and the outside of the person. Where the inside, if the inside is dark, the outside is dark. If the inside is light, the outside is light. Uh, The eye um, is used in Deuteronomy and Proverbs. It describes greedy people or people with evil eyes. They look at the world like hoarders and takers. Uh, By contrast, Jesus talks earlier about the pure in heart. As those who see God, they have good eyes. Uh, They look at the world like receivers and givers. Our heart's righteousness, our wholeness, is reflected in the way we see and interpret the world. Um, I'm reminded of myself when I play a strategy game and Maggie sometimes doesn't like to play these with me, um, like Settlers or Ticket to Ride or something, and the way my eyes react to someone's move, like the way you're watching um, how they move, uh, where my heart and treasure in that game are set very squarely on an objective and it colors how I respond to everything right? There's a scheming that happens uh, in those games. Um, I may not be open about my intentions, but if you're Maggie, who's married to me, you can see it in my eyes. Um, Our eyes reflect ourselves, right? We move about the world in the same way, viewing the world through the frame of our heart's treasure. When our treasure goes up, we go up. When our treasure goes down, we go down, And again, in Jesus' telling, the more righteous eye is not only more righteous, it is easier, it is better, it is sweeter, it is a relaxed eye. With our treasure eternally secure, we're freed to view the world with hope and love and creativity, freed from the slavery of anxious acquiring, anxious consuming. Matthew 6 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And again, we see how the way of Jesus is both more righteous and easier because who wants to have two masters? Like no one wants two masters. Who wants to be torn between the demands of two gods? Uh, Many times in my life, I've had two jobs, two bosses, and it's always such a relief when you can set that aside and just work for one person. It's just an easier reality to work for one person instead of two. Life is a lot easier with one authority, with one set of expectations, one set of objectives, especially when that authority is Jesus, who is kind and gracious and gentle. There's just no way to serve both God and money. Righteousness and wholeness is serving just one. And notice again, it's a matter of the heart. It's not just that you don't have time to serve both, though you don't. It's that serving both leads to hating one and loving the other. There's no way for you not to experience feeling torn between the two. Regarding money, of course, some of us might be led to love money and resent God uh, because of the limits obedience places on our ability. Um, That's an obvious danger, but it's just as disorienting to love God and resent money. Jesus is also wanting us to feel free from that, right? Where we are frustrated that we have to deal with it and wish it weren't a thing. Um, and I wonder if that resentment, if you find yourself, if I find myself, I do find myself, resentful of money and the demands of money. If I don't need to dig a little bit deeper and wonder, am I serving money in some, in some capacity? Maybe I don't love the money as my master. I hate money as my master. But Jesus is actually saying, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to serve. You don't have to think about money as your master. You can be free. Are you serving two masters, begrudgingly serving money but serving it still, feeling bossed around by economic expectations of your family, your status, your culture, your city? That's exhausting, and Jesus' way is better. Uh, Most of us, I imagine, wish we were free from slavery to money, but we can't seem to manage it. Um, You wish you could cut loose all economic ties and focus solely on love for God and neighbor with no thoughts to hustling for earthly treasure. Um, I often longingly read stories of monastics and communes and Wendell Berry and the Desert Fathers, all these people, and you're like, that sounds lovely, right? But God has called me to live here, right? In San Francisco, it's one of the most expensive places in the world. Everybody is hustling in this city. Most everybody is And so how can I not serve money? Unless you are incredibly wealthy, money is just a thing here. That was true for Jesus' audience too. And so we should respect the audience that Jesus spoke to. Jesus' disciples were almost all poor. Uh, None of them owned land or the means of production at this time. They served an economy, a colonial economy. And the few who weren't poor Uh, They became poor when they started following him. So like Matthew, the tax collector, he left things behind so that he could follow Jesus. In fact, one of the discernible differences between the economics of Jesus and the economics of the Old Testament is its bottom-up nature. I think that is a sharp difference just because 400 years has passed and Israel is no longer its own nation. It can't set its own laws. And if you look at the Old Testament, So much of the Old Testament's instruction around money assumes the perspective and privilege of the wealthy. Uh, It's written by people with influence and agency in their world, even if it was a small world, a tiny nation, like within that world, they had power and control. Abraham is a powerful man, he becomes incredibly wealthy. Right, Israel. After their time in Egypt in the wilderness, they become landowners. All of them. All of them have land and um, authority. The Psalms and Proverbs are written mostly by kings. By Solomon uh, writes the Proverbs. He has an abundance of wealth, and so so much of his instruction is written to people with wealth. Um, The Old Testament is definitely remarkable for its attention to the poor. It cares deeply about the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sick, the foreigner, but the poor are not central. They are receivers more than participants. Old Testament economics feels like a trickle-down ethics, where it expects those who have more to share with those who have less. But in Jesus' time, Jesus' economics feels more trickle-up, because he is speaking to people without power. It's not a matter of principle um, that trickle up is better than trickle down or anything. It's just required because Jesus is himself poor, right? His disciples are poor. Israel is a colony of Rome. They have no authority and power. So while the goals of worship and community are the same, the strategy is a little different. They have to learn how to affect change in the world from the posture of poverty, but they're not poor. And that's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. They have everything they need. I read recently um, an article on pastoral burnout, and and a good measure of pastoral burnout is whether that pastor would continue in his job if he no longer had to for financial reasons. So basically, like if you won the lottery, would you still be the pastor of that church? And that is encouraging to me because without question, Maggie and I would still be here. Like, I would be delighted. Um, I would love to win the lottery (laughs) and be independently wealthy and do exactly what I'm doing right now um, without economic concern. But Jesus' response to me in Matthew 6 is, you are independently wealthy. Your father is God. You can't get any more wealthy than that. Your treasure is in heaven. It is independent, safe forever. You are independently wealthy. And so when we wonder whether it's possible to lay up treasure in heaven while not laying up treasure on earth, when we wonder whether it's possible to keep our heart aimed at God's kingdom and not our own, to live a life with a healthy eye full of light, serving only God as our master, not money, Jesus' answer to us is, of course it's possible to live righteously, single-minded, wholehearted, because God is your father and he loves you. That is, in fact, the only reasonable way to live. 625, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? How would you rewrite that sentence? What are you anxious about? Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Do not be anxious about where you will work or about when you retire, about your housing, your car, about where your kids will go to school. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Is not life more than work and home more than housing? Matthew six twenty-six. look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? around money is often a fork in the road for us, where we are asked, will we continue to worship God alone, or will we return to the worship of money, or will we serve one master or two? And we see that in the wilderness, uh, Israel, when anxiety around food leads the people to wish they were slaves again, right? They want to go back. We do the same thing, and Matthew 6 is this sweet rebuke from Jesus. "O oh, you of little faith, does not God care for you? Is God not a good father? He will not leave you without. If he cares for the lilies, if he cares for the sparrows, he will care for you. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The problem with this question is that when I'm anxious, I think my anxiety is pretty effective, right? I think that I am adding an hour to my life. But is it effective in producing heavenly treasure? The fact is, if I die an hour early, it doesn't matter. In God's economy, where there is a treasure, an eternal treasure waiting for me. And so is my anxiety producing heavenly treasure? Or does it merely produce earthly treasure where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal? Man, notice how earthly treasure by definition invites anxiety, right? Because even when we obtain it, we don't really have it, right? At any moment, it can slip through our fingers. It can decay. It's already decaying. And so again, we see that the way of Jesus is both more righteous and far easier, far better. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Matthew 6:33. One of the first verses that I can remember memorizing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And I think when I first memorized it, I probably thought it was like, all these things will be added to you, you know? And that's just not the tone of the verse. The tone is more dismissive of it, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. All those things will be added to you. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear, where you work, like all those things will be handled completely. Seek first God's kingdom, his righteousness, As someone who gets anxious, who gets confused, who gets distracted and overwhelmed, it helps me so much to remember that all I need to do is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all those other things, all that stuff, all the things I worry about, all the things I'm anxious about, all the things, those will be added to me. And when they stop being added to me, I'll die and go to heaven and it'll be even better. We can live wholeheartedly, single-mindedly, righteously, and trust God with our wealth. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, then it's important to remember that no matter your material wealth, in God you are independently wealthy. Because of Christ's work on the cross, because of your adoption into God's family by grace through faith, there is an inheritance waiting for you that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, guarded by God. And so, no matter your economic situation here, right now, you are wealthy beyond measure and you should live like someone who is wealthy beyond measure. With a sense of freedom and hope, courage and creativity. No matter what is happening to your finances, you can respond to it with hope, with freedom, with courage with opportunity. Earlier, we talked about all the ethical questions around money that just tend to tear me apart where, man, is, am I saving enough? Is it okay if I save? How much is too little? How much money do I need to make? Should I make? Is it okay if I buy this or that? If I tithe, what do I do? And those are just not the questions Jesus encourages us to ask first. When we get to the point of asking those questions, it's important that we ask them from a place of non-anxiety, where we are secure in faith, secure in God. And so then we go, how much should I make? Is tithing enough? Should I buy this or that? But there's a hopefulness to life and to those questions, because we recognize that in in asking those questions, we have the opportunity to be obedient. We have the opportunity to pursue joy, to love God and love others. The first questions Jesus wants us to ask is, where is your treasure? Where is your heart? How healthy is your eye? How many masters are you serving? Are you anxious? why and in asking these questions he's inviting us into wholeheartedness he's inviting us to a righteousness which far exceeds that of the Pharisees is so much greater than their righteousness but is also so much sweeter so much easier so much more peaceful To a greater righteousness than the Pharisees, where our inner life matches our outer life. Greater, but easier. That is what I want. Of course, we need more than a pep talk from Jesus in this. We need proof. If we're going to live against the grain, we need power. And so how do we know that God is our Father? How do we know we have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us? Um, How do we know? How will we remember? Remember? Uh, the disciples may have been very suspicious at their initial hearing of this Sermon on the Mount, but then they saw Jesus' life, they saw what he did, and they saw his death. On their behalf, they saw his resurrection, and then they knew it's true. First John 4, 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What an important verse that it, it, before it commands us to love one another, it identifies us as beloved. Beloved, if you are loved of God, we also ought to love one another. It is only by looking to the cross and seeing how God proved his love for us in Jesus that we are then freed to love God and others. So before we go out and attempt to set our hearts with Christ in heaven, let us first remember in communion how Christ set his heart with us on earth. Second Corinthians eight nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the Sermon on the Mount and. I know that I am struck both by what feels like heavy demands, a otherworldly life, an impossible life to live, and yet you deliver it with such grace and compassion and ease to where your commands are really invitations Father, I pray that this morning we would receive that, that that there would be no one here experiencing shame and discouragement, um, but that you would give us all good eyes to receive your commands as invitations and to see how you always make a way for us to follow you. And you have in Jesus... Uh, on the cross and in the resurrection, as he sits at your right hand, and in the Spirit who is here ready and able and powerful to make us righteous, to make us whole. Uh, Father, would we be a church which lives out uh, whole person uh, obedience and righteousness? We love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.